0: Okay, so thank you for having me. I guess I'll I'll talk for about 10, 15 minutes, and then we'll just open up the floor for questions or conversation, whatever it is you'd like to talk about. Uh, So two parts. One is what is Islam, and then two, what is the experience of Muslims here in the United States? Uh, The Islam part, uh, there are about a billion and a half Muslims in the world. Uh, usually when we hear of sectarian differences of Muslims, we hear of Sunnis and Shias, or Shiites. There's actually other groups too. And a population of a billion and a half, you're going to find every single type of Muslim size or shape, as well as devotion. Right? Some are going to be super religious, some are going to be not as religious, as is the case with every single other population in the world. Right? Islam itself, uh, in one way, is about 1400 years old. And what I mean by that is that when we in our society look at religions, we often say that the oldest religions might be Hinduism, Judaism, maybe the religions of Mesopotamia. And then we often say Islam is one of the youngest of, of the major religions. When you position yourself within Islam, Islam sees itself as the oldest religion. Because in the Islamic paradigm, Adam is a prophet of Islam. Moses and Jesus are prophets of Islam. Abraham is a prophet of Islam. Now, Islam itself is an Arabic word, and and these other figures do not speak Arabic. So what are we saying when we're saying they're prophets of Islam? That the core of Islam is one simple statement, that there's no God, lowercase g, but God, capital G. Right, so monotheism. And so we're saying that in the Islamic paradigm, these other figures that you've probably heard of through through, uh, biblical tradition, uh, we're appointed by the divine, by the supreme being, uh, to call their people to this message that there's no god to turn to except for the supreme being, God capital G. Now, what else that also means is that uh, whatever it is I rely upon in my core, above all else, to take me from danger into safety, is what I turn to as a god. Meaning, let's say I'm going, I'm going camping. And for safety, uh, I might keep my phone with me, even though I might not have much of a signal. I might keep some money with me. I might keep some tools and such. Now, suppose I lose all of those things, okay? Then I might rely upon my, my intuition or my intellect to figure out how to get out of the forest. But let's say I'm so disoriented that I can't even figure out one way or the other. Then what do I rely upon? Do I fall into despair? Or do I just have this blanket hope that maybe something will happen? And so when you lose all else, what do you rely upon? That's what you take as a god, lowercase g. So what we're saying in the Islamic paradigm, whatever it is you turn to, to to keep you out of danger, to take you out of danger, to keep you in safety, to take you out of safety, is what you turn to as a god. Or what you turn to to take you out of despair. So in our society, a lot of people might turn to the bottle to take them out of despair, but once, once the buzz goes away, you're back in the situation you were in And so, what do I turn to to take me out of despair into hope? What do I turn to to take me out of confusion into clarity? What do I turn to for comfort? Again, above all else, losing everything else, that's what I take as as a god. And so the basic call of Islam is that anything you turn to other than the supreme being can't fulfill those needs for safety, for clarity, for hope, for comfort, except for the supreme being. That, in a sense, is the core message of Islam across all the different sectarian groups. And then one way that the divine gives this message is by appointing prophets who have the responsibility of calling people to that message. And so the first in the Islamic paradigm is Adam, and the last of those figures is Muhammad, who lived 1400 years ago. So we often say in our culture, meaning in our society here, that Islam began about 1400 years ago, that's when Muhammad was around, and the Islamic paradigm, we say it was completed with Muhammad. That the other prophets also came giving pieces of this and then it all gets completed with Muhammad. And we can talk about all these things um, in, in the q That, in a nutshell, sums it all up. right? Now there's other consequences to the belief. How do I live it? That's another uh, function of the prophets, that they're the models on how to be prophets. or they're the models on how to be true believers, right down to the smallest, smallest detail you can imagine. Uh, And what does it all sum up as? You're devoting yourself in terms of your intentions to God, and in the way you interact with people, it's with upright character, which you'll find in the most loose sense across all all religious traditions. Now, moving from there to talking about Islam in the world, Islam in America. So we said there's about a billion and a half, 1.6 billion Muslims in every continent, every country, every city. Uh, my family, we came to the United States when I was about two years old, way back in the early 70s, and, and so I've been here ever since. I was born in Pakistan. Pakistan's about 99% Muslim. There's a small population of Christians, small population of Hindus, a small population of Sikhs, also, also in Pakistan. And I grew up essentially on the south side of Chicago, south side, south suburbs, and almost the entirety of my life has been in a very, very small region. So I drive 40 miles to, to come up here. And to, if we were to look at the experience of Islam in the course of my lifetime, we see a number of big changes. But Islam itself has had a presence here for about 400 years going at least to the beginning of the transatlantic slave trade. There's different numbers in terms of what percentage of the enslaved were Muslims. Some say as low as 30%, some say as high as 80% uh, that were among the enslaved that were Muslims. But those were not settlements or communities that lasted. And then there were other pockets of Muslims. For example, Chinese Muslims started migrating to America back in the 1800s, and some settled in California, some settled in Nevada. And most of those have also, also disappeared. And then we have this movement that was called the Nation of Islam that began about 80 years ago, led by a figure named Elijah Muhammad who claimed to be a prophet of God. So remember we said that Islam is completed with the Muhammad of 1400 years ago, he's saying he's also a prophet, which means he's already parting from mainstream Islamic belief. And the most famous two prod- uh, protégés from the Nation of Islam are Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. Today is actually the anniversary of the assassination of Malcolm X. He was killed in 1965. And their philosophy was what we'd call racial separatism. Their view was that, uh, that the, the identity of the black Americans was erased And so our job is to reclaim that identity, starting with their version of Islam. And part of their theology is that the white man is the devil. The white man is the cause of all the problems of the world. Malcolm X was one of the biggest preachers of this. And then he had a falling out with Elijah Muhammad because of some of Elijah Muhammad's behaviors. And he goes on this pilgrimage to Mecca, which is where the story of Islam essentially takes place. And he comes back with a completely different view he starts embracing mainstream Islam, which is universal for everyone, size, shape, color, gender, etc. And And then sub, subsequently, he gets gunned down, uh, officially at least by people who were followers of, of Elijah Muhammad. That same year, immigration laws in the, in the United States change, allowing immigration uh, for people from just about all the other countries in the world, where up to this point, majority of immigration was from Europe, And as mentioned, from other places like China and such, but now it's wide open. And this is when my family came. And in the 1970s, uh, Islam, at best, was a novelty. So Muhammad Ali was famous for being a Muslim. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, basketball player, was famous for being a Muslim. Cat Stevens was a very popular rock star. He became a Muslim, but it was essentially a novelty. Almost the way we looked at other Eastern religions at the time. Then, in the end of the the 1970s, there's a revolution in Iran. Iran was run by a king, a Shah, a very brutal king, and there was a religious revolution uh, led by these people called the Ayatollahs, which is a term for for a certain type of Islamic scholar. And then Islam started entering the news uh, with this idea of religious fanatics and such. But still, our biggest enemy at the time was the Russians, It was the Soviets. And then moved to the end of the 1980s, and the beginning of the 1990s, the Soviet Union falls. uh, The Berlin Wall falls. And the sense that we were in a Cold War between capitalism and communism has come to an end. And now the question was, who's our new enemy? And so there's a particular uh, uh, political science paper written by Samuel Huntington called The Clash of Civilizations. And he said that now our next challenge will be a civilizational challenge. And most likely, either it'll be with Islam or it'll be with China. He divides the world up into six regions. And he says our challenges will be with those two groups. And so in the 90s, uh, Islam stopped being a novelty. And now we really started hearing terms like Muslim terrorist. So in 1993, there was the first bombing of the World Trade Center building. You've all heard of of 9-11. But in 1993, there was a bombing at that time. And then it was subsequently blamed on particular Muslims, and then a year later, the Oklahoma City Federal Building was bombed, and the first thought was that it was Muslims, okay? because this is how our psychology had shifted—that this population in the world and this population among us is out to destroy us. And so, me—I mean, at this point, I'm in my twenties and such. Um, this is now what's uh, what's in the air. Also, globally, other things were taking place. There's ethnic cleansing of Bosnians who were Muslims and and Croats um, uh, taking place. Bosnia is essentially near uh, uh, Eastern Europe or in, in Eastern Europe. The Soviet Union had fallen and there's a number of states that were Muslim majority states that were trying to break off. And so they were in the news. And then in Afghanistan, this movement called the Taliban had taken over. And so what I'm saying is that the Muslims were in the news all over the place. And that then contributed to our sentiments over here, like, who is this population? And why do they all seem to be so violent? Or that's how they're being portrayed. And then 9-11 happens. Okay? And so all those sentiments now grow tremendously. And so from 9-11 through to today, so about almost 15 and a half years later, much of the, the, the focus in the Muslim community has been to say, look, that's not us. That's not Islam, right? And a lot of times, when I go to speak at places, uh, the questions I get are essentially along the lines of, prove to us that you're not a danger to us, Right? which is a strange way of, of you know, uh, asking people questions. So in the time, in the past 15 years, this is no exaggeration, I've probably given a few thousand talks. And to put in perspective, people are asking me to come give talks. Shortly after 9-11, uh, I started giving about 50 talks a year. Then it went up to about 200 talks a year. Then around 2010, it went up to 500 talks a year, then 1,000 talks a year, literally. And do the math, that's about three a day. Um, usually my Saturday and Sunday was place after place after place after place. Leave the house at 7, get home at midnight. Uh, all because people were curious. Tell us, what is Islam? What are you guys all about? Right? Now, where are we today? Um, we had the election of President Obama. And there were a lot of people who were suggesting that Obama was a secret Muslim. And then people would ask me that, and I'd say, I don't know, but if he's a Muslim, he's obviously not a very good Muslim. But uh, the the point being that that was being presented as a statement of suspicion, right, that he's not one of us. Uh, And then with the election of our current president, as you've all heard the news that's been going on lately with executive orders and such, now there's a really deep sense in the Muslim community, along with undocumented uh, Latinos, Latinos, along with LGBT, that we're under threat, that we don't know what the future holds for us. And that's sometimes what I have to say, frankly, to to the students who come to my office, frightened, that I have no idea where we're going to be in a year. Looking at the direction things are going, there's no indication that things are going to get better. Hopefully, worst case scenario is that things will uh, be stable, but we don't know where things are going. Right. And so part of uh, what I want to share with you is not just Muslim theology and the Muslim experience, but the sense and building off, you know, what you've learned from Dorothy Day, the sense that this is a burden, not just on my shoulders, but it's also on your shoulders. Right. Because you and I own this society as much as everyone else. And this is not me telling you which way to go, but me saying for each and every one of us that don't let other people, you know, take your country from you. This is your burden. Which, in a way, I almost feel like we're leaving them uh, a worse world than the world that was handed to us. But, sorry, no, but uh, but having said that, I mean, the only other point to think about is that my default experience is to be the minority in the room. Uh, Except, you know, if I'm in an an Islamic center. Uh, I'm not used to being in a room, a large room, like in a public space where everybody's like me. My default experience is to be the anomaly in the room. Uh, I don't know how to be different. I remember one time I went to UIC about 20 years ago. So UIC, you're all familiar with it, right? University of Illinois Chicago. The joke of UIC is we call it University of, of Indians and Chinese. And and when I walked into that campus, I thought, whoa, this is a strange experience for me. There's so many so many brown people here. What is this like, right? But uh, these things inform our worldviews. That we do have a default in our society that when I ask 10-year-olds, regardless of what their religious or ethnic background is, I ask them, when you think of an American, what do you think of? 10-year-olds will tell me what? What do you think? Somebody white, right? Even though for the entirety of their conscious life, the president was a black American. And so what I'm saying is, think about where you even fit in terms of the sense of the unwritten default of our society. This doesn't mean white people are bad. This doesn't mean, you know, non-white people are good or anything like that. But this also affects your consciousness. So W.E.B. Du Bois has this, uh, this idea of the double consciousness uh, when he's speaking about black Americans, saying that black Americans constantly have this notion of thinking about what they think about, and then having the consciousness or thinking about what do other people think about us at the same time. And that's probably true for for many Muslims in our society too. Like when I see a Muslim walking by with her hair covered and I see other people, part of my thought is what are other people thinking about her, right? And and so that also just affects our depiction of America. So on the one hand, I'm saying this is my society just as much as it is anyone else's. Uh, But on the other hand, uh, more and more with each decade, I've often felt like I'm getting little by little Pushed out, but I'm thick-headed, being from the south side, so that's not going to happen anytime soon. But uh, having said that, just you know, starting the conversation, let's uh, let's talk. What's uh, any questions or thoughts about anything at all, anything whatsoever? Yes, sir. You will hear like the phrases uh, Islamic community and like Muslim yeah. community. Yeah. What's the difference? Uh, essentially, there isn't really any difference. So so Muslim is a person who does Islam. Islamic is something Islam-ish, if you know what I'm saying? Uh, so I will often use Muslim community uh, uh, just to emphasize that it's a community of Muslims who may or may not be good Muslims, right? And when I'm speaking of, of Muslim-majority countries, I won't refer to it as the Muslim world, as opposed to Muslim-majority countries. But usually people are referring to the same thing, yeah. So, good question. Other questions about anything? And yeah, this, yes? Yeah. Of exotic, yeah. like, I know kind like, of, like, So, so this is a good question. So Malcolm X is born in Omaha, uh, Nebraska. His father was, was a very outspoken preacher who followed the ideas of Marcus Garvey. So this is the 1930s. And Marcus Garvey was one of the few black American preachers saying, okay, don't be afraid of white people. Because this is the 1930s. This is, this is 70 years, one lifetime since the Emancipation Proclamation, right? Bless you. So, so many of the people who around, their parents or their grandparents were enslaved. And so he is saying that the only true place for the black Americans is to go back to Africa, right? He's saying we're never going to be welcome here. Now that is in some degree the environment that Malcolm is raised in, but his father dies or gets killed, depending upon which story, uh, which story we follow. His, his opinion is that his father was killed by members of the Klan. And his mother, trying to raise seven children, was subsequently institutionalized. And so you had these kids that kind of were jumping from foster home to foster home, including him, and eventually he went into a life of crime. And, and makes his way to Boston. Uh, where he becomes part of some some underground rings and then he gets arrested and sent to jail. While he's in jail uh, a few of his siblings come to him and they tell him about this new religion that that they've embraced called the Nation of Islam led by this person Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm is very suspicious of all people of religion Uh, he saw it more as performance than, than piety but he did notice that his siblings had transformed you know, from whatever they were to something really, really disciplined and upright. And that's what intrigued him. But it took him time to, to get interested. But finally, he, he writes a letter to, to Elijah Muhammad. Uh, and Elijah Muhammad writes back, also sends him some money, and that gets his attention more. And he leaves prison, eventually, having converted to the nation of Islam. And there's also other interesting stories that he suddenly gets really interested in studying. He was always a good student. But now he's using his time rather than focus on hustling people, uh, instead use it for, for studying. So he reads the entire dictionary, cover to cover, right? And, and so he leaves and he goes straight to Elijah Muhammad to go work for him. He has jobs, regular jobs, like he works for the Ford Motor Company for a while. Uh, but he becomes a very devoted follower of Elijah Muhammad. And Elijah Muhammad's teachings are that the original man is the black man, right? And the white man's the devil. And God came in the form of a man named Master Fard Muhammad, who made Elijah Muhammad, his messenger, to call people, uh, to call the black American community, to God. And they also believe that there's no day of judgment, meaning when you're dead, you're dead. That's a little bit different than mainstream Islam. In mainstream Islam, God doesn't come in the form of a man. Right, Elijah Muhammad's not a prophet, and there is a day of judgment where everyone who has lived will be held to account for their choices. Malcolm is part of this, and he names himself the angriest man in America. And so on the one hand, you have Dr. King, who is preaching love your enemy, and then you have Malcolm, who's preaching love yourself. Okay. But when he's saying love yourself, everyone else outside is hearing it as hate your enemy. Right? And his language is also that we have to have justice by any means necessary. Okay? Which, for much of his time of preaching, means whatever it takes, violent or nonviolent, that's what you do. Okay. Then, what starts happening is that he starts hearing these rumors that Elijah Muhammad had fathered uh, babies with some of his secretaries. And at first, he just believes this is a conspiracy against Elijah Muhammad. But his wife, Betty, makes him go investigate, because she believes it's all true. And she's also watching other ways in which, as Malcolm is rising in popularity, because he's getting called to give speeches a lot more than Elijah Muhammad is, she also thinks that people in the nation of Islam are getting jealous of him. And so he investigates, meets these secretaries, and all the accusations are true. And so this shatters his faith completely, because he devoted himself completely to Elijah Muhammad, especially as someone who's used to hustling people. Now he feels like he's gotten hustled. And this is when he decides to go on the pilgrimage to Mecca. He starts his own organization separate from Elijah Muhammad. He also starts making apologies because he used to call Dr. King and Uncle Tom, and he starts apologizing uh, about all the nasty things he said about other leaders. Goes on the pilgrimage to Mecca, and then he sees Muslims of every color, uh, every size and shape, including Muslims who have blonde hair, blue eyes. And this surprises him. And everyone is there praying together and such, and no one's thinking about this. And that opens his eyes. And so then he comes, he writes a letter to his wife, basically saying, you're going to be shocked, but I saw Muslims whose eyes are the bluest of blue, whose skin is the whitest of white, whose hair is the blondest of blond, and we're all together as Muslims. And, and so he comes back with this new philosophy, um, which, I mean, essentially it's mainstream Islam. And, and so he's now preaching something more along the lines of what we think of when we think of Dr. King, right? Uh, The funny thing is that if you look at Dr. King in his latter years, he becomes more like the old Malcolm, right? He becomes a lot more tough. We don't talk about that part. Malcolm becomes a lot more soft. James Baldwin, he has this new movie out that I recommend everyone to watch. He says they basically, they kind of converged, even though they are complete opposites, right? And and, uh, probably about a year after he went on the pilgrimage, he was gunned down. Uh, the people who were convicted were members of the Nation of Islam, but before, uh, Malcolm was killed, he, he suggested that the FBI was part of this too. He was saying, he's watching how things are happening, this is bigger than anything the Nation of Islam would be able to do. Okay. So, yeah, uh, he's remembered for being violent, but I don't think he's ever endorsed violence except, uh, in self-defense, uh, but he became very, very pacifist in his final years, so, yeah. Any other questions? Yes? Uh,
1: you said are there are like, like, numerous sects of Islam. Mm-hmm. Um, are they more concentrated in certain areas, or are they diversified? And in countries where uh, it's, like, Islam is intertwined with um, politics, would you say that there's a defined uh, sect of Islam that's mm.
0: I mean, the answer really comes down to wherever it is we are in the world. So, so we talked about like Iran having the Iranian revolution. So Iran is about 60% Shia, uh, which is a particular old sect of Islam, about 30% Sunni. And so their government is essentially a theocratic democracy. And so their Shia tradition is the dominant tradition of of that environment, right? Um, Iraq is sort of the inverse. um, But Iraq doesn't really have, you know, Iraq is under ISIS right now. And ISIS, it's hard to call them anything except for like their own sectarian group. They sort of take uh, literal interpretations of everything. In religion, there's always a question of what's metaphor, what's not. And that's a big part of conversation in the, in the study of Islamic scriptures. But they take everything as literal, right? Uh, Pakistan was formed about 60 years ago to be an Islamic republic, a modern Islamic republic. Uh, the majority population there is Sunni. Uh, but among the elite, there's a higher population of Shias. That's just how Pakistan played out. Uh, so it really depends on where we are. Uh, in terms of smaller sectarian groups, think of the Nation of Islam, which is based here in Chicago, on the south side of Chicago, kind of like the way in Christianity we would think of the Mormons. Because the Mormons are definitely not Catholic, they're not Eastern Orthodox, and they're not really Protestant, right? They are sort of what we call heterodox. They're in the umbrella of Christianity, but they don't fit in the big three. That's how the Nation of Islam is. Uh, and there's other movements throughout throughout the history of Islam that are sort of these small sectarian groups that never really grew that big or they might be blips in history and you find that in every corner. But the big groups are the Sunnis, which are about 80%, uh, the Shias, which is which are about 15 to 20%. And then there's another small group called the Ibadis, which no one's heard of, but they're just as old as the Sunnis and the Shias. There's about a million of them as opposed to a billion. And then everybody else, which is probably about 1%. Yeah, And a lot of it, the difference is uh, what sources do we take for guidance? And how do we interpret guidance? So the fundamental difference between Sunnis and Shias is how do we take our sources of guidance? So the Sunnis look at the companions of the prophet. Kind of like what we'd speak of when we speak of the disciples of Jesus. The Shias look at the family members of the prophet. Okay? Both of those make sense in a different way. But that's the fundamental difference. There's other theories like in terms of political differences, but the actual fundamental difference is where do you get guidance from? Like how do you understand the teachings of the prophet Muhammad himself? One side says his companions, the people around him. The other side says his family, the people in his house. Yeah. Any other questions about anything? Don, 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 don. Yes. So, <clears throat> conflict rises, I mean, every time I've studied conflicts between sectarian groups, not necessarily limited to Islam, it seems to play out often when there's some sort of power vacuum, but essentially politics are involved. In an example of this, I was, I was at a session uh, uh, by a Chicago Tribune reporter who used to cover Iraq, and he said that in around the year 2000, if you went to Iraq and asked somebody, are you Sunni or Shia?, they wouldn't even understand the question. And then after 2003 or so, if you ask people, are you Sunni or Shia, they would give you an identification. And so what took place? After we removed Saddam Hussein, There's this massive power vacuum, and you had a lot of people who were essentially warlords or religious leaders who were jockeying for power. And so the same thing happened in Afghanistan in the mid-1990s. But the difference is that in Afghanistan, people started jockeying for power according to ethnicity. So Afghanistan has about six different major ethnicities. Um, And that led to a civil war. In Iraq, they were aligning themselves more according to sectarian boundaries. So it wasn't so much Sunnis versus Shias. It was this particular Sunni body versus this particular Sunni body versus this other Shia body versus this other Shia body. Right? So on the outside, it looks like Sunnis versus Shias, but it's a little bit more complicated than that. Right? And an easy way to think about this, um, when, I was, when I was younger, uh, in Ireland, there was a conflict between the Catholics and the Protestants. Right? And some of it was violent. And looking from the outside in, you would think that there's something in doctrine, Christian doctrine, where Catholics and Protestants are supposed to hate each other. But no, it's politics. And a lot of times the po- politics relate to occupation, and, and other other political forces. That's my take on it. I mean, theology is still in there, right? But theology doesn't seem to be the motivation. And I'm skeptical, speaking as a chaplain, I'm skeptical that theology is that strong that it can lead people to a mass movement that lasts a long time, unless there's material factors too. Even like when we think of ISIS, like why did ISIS start now? Um, well, I mean, they, they got access to oil fields and such. Um, and Like I said, there's a big power vacuum, and so some people took advantage of it. Other questions about anything? We're here for a long time, so fire away. What else are your curiosities? Yes? Okay, very good. So in the Islamic paradigm, uh, God sends scripture to various prophets. So in the Islamic paradigm, Moses received a scripture, which in Arabic is called the Torah. What does that sound like? The Torah, exactly. Uh, Jesus received a scripture called the Injil. Uh, And this is a side point. I've only met one person in history who claimed to have a copy of the Injil. This is, I was taking the train. Now it's called the Red Line train. I forgot what it was called back then. It was like... um, it was called the Howard Dan Ryan train. This is a long, long, long time ago. And there's a guy, uh, a black American man at the 95th Street station, uh, dressed in Pakistani clothes, with this table with all this Arabic writing. And I'm looking, and I'm like 20 years old. And uh, I'm asking him, Is this Islam? He goes, No, this is the Injeel. And I go, do you have the Quran? He goes, no, this is the Injeel. And then I had to go catch the train, so I didn't care anymore. But uh, <laughs> I, I wish i I wish talked to him more to see what he had. But um, in the Islamic paradigm, Jesus also received a scripture. The scripture Muhammad received is called the Quran. And so within that, that's the foundation for the teaching. So you will find the five pillars in there. And, and so the five pillars, uh, I'll write them down really briefly, and I'll show you an easy way for you to remember them. You'll think it's pretty cool. So the first pillar... <laughs> Okay, so the first pillar is the declaration of faith. And that is to bear witness that there's no God, lowercase g, but God, capital G, and that Muhammad is the messenger of God. If I believe that, then by definition I'm Muslim. The second is the daily prayers. So Muslims are prescribed to pray five times a day. And many Muslims on campus here will go to, if you guys ever been to the Hall of Faiths in Damon, so there's the menresa room, non-denominational Christian room, then there's the, the Muslim prayer spaces, and then there's halal, and then there's uh, the Hindu space. So you'll find Muslims that will go there very frequently to make their prayers. Uh, then there's also uh, fasting in one of the Islamic months, which is called Ramadan. So the Islamic calendar has 12 months like our calendar, but the months are a little bit shorter. And so the calendar itself moves from year to year compared to ours. It moves up a week and a half. So right now, this next Ramadan is going to start probably at the end of May, and it'll go for a month. Next year, it'll start around the middle of May, because the Islamic calendar is about a week and a half shorter than ours. And there, you fast sun up to sundown, no food, no water. And then the annual charity. So the bare minimal minimum charity. You have to give a percentage of your savings once a year. You're actually prescribed to give charity all day long, every single day. This is the bare minimum. Yeah. And then once in your lifetime, the pilgrimage to Mecca. So Mecca is where Muhammad's life took place and also in the Islamic paradigm uh, a big portion of Abraham's life also took place so these are the core five pillars so if you're to think of your belief your life as a house these are the pillars that are holding up the house, right? meaning this isn't everything, but this is the foundation and an easy way to remember this is that time is built into each and every one of these so it takes just a moment to make the declaration of faith and then your daily prayers, fasting in the month of Ramadan, and then the annual charity and pilgrimage once in a lifetime. So if you remember a moment, a day, a month a year, a lifetime, it'll become easier to remember the five pillars. You can go impress press your, your Muslim friends, because they probably don't even know this until they take my class. Yeah. Well. Any other questions? And we even think about, what do these pillars serve? The first one is just, you know, you're deciding that you are of belief. The, d- the daily prayers, they relate to different times of the day, uh, where the sun is in the sky or how, how long your shadow is. So there's a connection there to nature. And if you think about the fact that through the course of the day, you have to keep making these prayers, the prayers are usually about five minutes each at the most. Uh, it keeps your mind both concentrated on the divine because you have to keep making your prayers it also gives you a certain type of stability in your day right this repeated pattern ramadan is sort of like boot camp for a month so we said no food no water from sun up to sundown in june think about how long of a period of time that is that's about 16 hours if you're in chicago and so you get up around 3 30 in the morning to take a snack and then no food no water until about 8 30 in the evening okay? And think about what that does to you. How would you feel after the first day of doing that? How would you describe that? You'd be completely exhausted, right? And so the metaphor of fasting is traveling. So imagine you're driving for 16 hours straight. You're gonna be drained after the first day. Then you stay in your hotel room and relax. Next day you drive again for 16 hours. You're gonna be even more drained. Now a week and a half of this, you'll be completely depleted and then you're gonna see your real personality, right? And so in the first 10 days, you're being reduced to your real personality. So for example, when you and I are interacting with each other, we're only showing parts of our personality. I mean, believe it or not, I'm not always this cool, right? That was a joke, yeah, I actually am this cool. No, 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 So, So then what happens in the second period of 10 days, now you're evaluating yourself on what it is you need to work on. So what are the big problems in terms of our greater society, anger, Sloth, doubt, ingratitude. Whatever you have inside, you're going to see it. Okay? And that's what you work on. That's what we work on identifying in that second week and a half of fasting. And then the last week and a half or so, now you're looking forward to what are you going to do with this? Either you can just go through the cycle of fasting every year and you're done, and that's a passing grade. Or you can decide in the next 11 months until the next Ramadan. I'm gonna to try to work at least a little bit to resolve one of these issues within myself so that when I go through the cycle again, I'm exposed to things that are even deeper. Right? So this is, a, this is called purification. Okay? You're identifying those things within yourself to, to resolve. So this is our boot camp. Charity I think we all understand. Charity is both uh, a benefit to the recipient but it's especially a benefit to the giver. And in this language you're also purifying yourself from your attachment to your wealth because you give of your wealth and you see you're still okay. It's very easy to get attached. And the pilgrimage to Mecca, there aren't too many rituals in Islam, but the pilgrimage is almost entirely rituals. And what's taking place here is that you're leaving your home, you're going to this one spot, and you're literally seeing Muslims from every single corner of the globe. I was gifted with the opportunity to go on the pilgrimage uh, about 18 years ago. And I met literally people from every single corner of the world. I met, And it seemed like everybody was from like two places. So I'm a Pakistani guy from America. Uh, I met Pakistanis from Norway. I met Sudanese people from Bosnia. I met Chechens. I met Afghanistanis. Uh, There were people from Africa who left to go on the pilgrimage a year in advance on foot to go. Like for me, coming from the United States, it's a piece of cake. You you just got to have a plane ticket. But for most of the world, you and I are the 1% compared to the rest of the world. And so these are people who save up their entire lives to, to be able to go. And you see everybody together. But that's, uh, those are the five pillars. Yes? So like, what happens if there's something that like, enables you from like, going on the pilgrimage? Or like like uh, prevents you? Yes. Um, then you're excused. Meaning you go on the pilgrimage if you're able. So ability could mean uh, financially you can afford it. I Meaning if you're in debt, you're technically not able to go. Right? So you're not obliged to go, um, or physically. When I went, there was a woman whose doctor told her not to go. She had just had a double mastectomy, and she had a heart condition. And her doctor's saying, don't go. Right? But she still insisted on going, you know, to the detriment of her health. She probably should not have, but she still had a great time. I mean, pilgrimages, not just in Islam, but in general, tend to be really, really grueling because uh, it is almost like an endurance test. Think of the pilgrimage as Ramadan compressed down to a couple days. You will be exposed to who you are just because of how taxing the experience is. And then you'll be exposed to what you need to work on. You know? And likewise, so there's particular postures for the daily prayers that if you can't do them, you do what you can. Right? Uh, there was a time where I had real serious problems with my knees, so I couldn't uh, prostrate. So I'd pray in a chair. And so... That's how it is with all these. If you can't physically fast, it's recommended that you feed people. If you can't afford to feed people, then you have the intention that if you could have, you would have. Other questions? Yes, sir. Uh, What are the rituals that you do at Mecca and what are the significance? Sure. So the pilgrimage to Mecca is commemorating a number of things, and it's also observing a number of things. So you've probably seen photos of this structure in Mecca, it's a cubical structure that usually has like a black cloth on it. It's called the Kaaba. And in Islamic tradition, it was first built by Adam. And then with the great flood, it was washed away. And then it was rebuilt by Abraham and Ishmael. And it's been rebuilt since then, but it's believed to be on the same spot that those previous Kaabas were built. And so if you go inside, it's an empty room. It's about three or five stories high. It's literally just an empty room. But this is the direction of prayer. So if there are two Muslims in the world, they pray inside of it, right? But in Chicago, we pray essentially northeast to compensate for the curve of the globe to face towards Mecca. Now, when you go on the pilgrimage, there's a number of rituals. One is that you walk around the Kaaba. Okay. And think about what you're doing. Your whole life, you're probably facing the Kaaba from one direction. Every time you hear one direction, I think of my nieces who are obsessed with St. Malikula. He's not in one direction. Anyway, so, like literally every time I say one direction, that comes to mind because of her. So now you're facing the Kaaba from every direction, as opposed to me being in Chicago. It's always from one particular corner. You also pray your normal daily prayers facing the Kaaba. And this gets interesting because usually the pilgrimage has like 3 to 5 million people. So you're performing the prayer in unison with 3 million other people. Right? And it's also neat because everybody prays almost exactly the same way. Then near, uh, near the Kaaba, there's these two hills. And this relates to the story of, of Hagar. So in the Islamic paradigm, Abraham is married to Sarah. She is not able to give birth to a child, so she says, marry my servant Hagar, and and she gives birth to Ishmael, which is very similar to the biblical story, right? And then Abraham uh, is instructed by God to take Hagar and Ishmael to this barren valley, which is called uh, Becca, which later becomes Mecca. And he leaves them there, and he starts heading back. And so she says to him, you know, are you leaving us here with no food or water? This valley is barren. He doesn't respond, she asks him again, he doesn't respond. And then she says to him, did God tell you to leave us here? And he says, yes. And then she says, well then God is gonna take care of us. So she starts running to the top of each hill to see if she can find anything in sight indicating any vegetation or anything. She leaves her child here, uh, so she goes back to checking her child, child's okay, goes to the top of another hill. And she keeps going back and forth And he is kicking his foot on the ground, and that unleashes a well, or that unleashes a pool of water, which is still around today, the well of Zumzum. And so now she has nourishment. Now, the way this story is read is that her story is one of someone who has complete conviction in the divine, that if God said to leave her there, she knows she's going to find her nourishment. She has to get up and find it, right? If she just sat there with her baby, she wouldn't have found it. It was when she put her baby on the ground and the baby was kicking that it unleashed the well. So, in commemoration of that, you run back and forth between these two hills. That's another of the rituals of of the pilgrimage. And then near Mecca, there's this city, which is basically a city of tents, where you stay um, for a couple of days, and you make your normal prayers and such. And that's literally called the tent city. And those are the core rituals. Now, what is this doing? At one level, you're commemorating family. This is a mother's love for her child. This was built by a father and his child. Right? So you're commemorating family. At another level, everybody dresses the same way. And so you're removing social class. Right? Because I mean, if you're coming from America, you're going to be wealthier than just about everybody there, even if you know, you're working in a part-time job with less than minimum wage. But social class uh, gets removed, and what else is taking place, this is looked at as a dry run of the Day of Judgment, because the simple clothing that you're dressed in is essentially two sheets, which is how you uh, dress someone when you're burying them. Okay? And so it's a dry run of the Day of Judgment, where everyone is going to be t- together, leading to whatever, what eventually becomes the day which, where each person will be held to account for the choices they made in their lives. So that, in a nutshell, is, uh, is the pilgrimage. It takes about three days. Yeah. Any other questions? And there's also luxuries there. It's not like everyone is, is staying in tents. There's, there's high-rise um, hotels that are as tall as the Willis Tower, yeah, right, around the, right around the whole region, yeah. that naturally cost more. Yeah. Those, usually, you're not going to have a place for those when you're in the pilgrimage itself. Sometimes people come a week early. They'll stay in the hotels. And then they get into the pilgrimage gear, meaning the, the simple clothing. And then they start the pilgrimage, and then that's when everyone stays in the towns. Yeah. Other questions about anything?
1: So the yes. game of Judgment. Uh, is there so the the folks who fail in these yeah. pillars and practices? So what is there forgiveness? Mm. How does what how does you
0: know, how does one yeah. come
1: before God in one's
0: failure? Sure. So <clears throat> uh, it's recommended for everyone to frequently seek forgiveness, right? And it's not just uh, falling short on acts of worship. This also includes falling short on your interaction with other people. So if I am falling short on my interactions with you, let's say I tell you a lie. Or let's say you entrust me with something and like a secret and I go tell everyone then it's up to you whether or not you forgive me, right? And so the general uh, theology or the general interpretation in Islam is that if you don't forgive me, then God is not going to forgive me. Whereas on things that I owe to him, I will probably be forgiven, right? But there's a test of sincerity, a three-part test of sincerity, whether I'm asking you for forgiveness or I'm asking God for forgiveness. The first is do I regard the action that I did or didn't do as wrong? So let's say I lie to you, uh, and then I'm seeking your forgiveness. Do I regard the lie as wrong? So the answer should be yes. Do I stop doing it? Okay. The answer for that should be yes. And do I hate to go back to it? So do, do I regard it as wrong? Do I stop doing it? And do I hate to go back to it? If I can say yes for all three of those, then it's assumed that my request is sincere. Sometimes, you know, you might have someone who is praying for forgiveness, but keeps doing the same act over and over again. You should still ask for forgiveness. So if I don't regard the action as wrong, it means that I need more knowledge right, to understand why it's wrong. If I don't stop doing the action, then it might need, mean that I need some sort of training, right? So let's say I'm addicted to, to booze. Muslims are not supposed to drink. not supposed to. Um, and I seek forgiveness, but then I drink again. So there I might need to go through a program, right? Uh, if I don't hate to go back to it, because this is something you also find uh, with recovering drug addicts that uh, they want to go back because there's still a, a culture and a camaraderie there, then I might need more knowledge and more training. Yeah. And, but that would be a test of my sincerity. And that's essentially one of the big goals in all this is to become more and more sincere with ourselves. When you're more sincere with yourself, then you're more sincere with others around you and the divine. But, yeah, you keep seeking forgiveness. And the basic belief is that everyone will be treated completely fairly, on the Day of Judgment. So even a question I get is, can non-Muslims go to paradise? The answer is that everyone will be treated fairly. So some theologians say no, other theologians say yes, but everyone agrees on the part that you'll be either treated with fair, fairness or you might get other mercy from God the, uh, better than that. But you will not be treated with less than what you deserve. And everyone will recognize in the Day of Judgment that they're being treated fairly. Yeah. Any other questions about anything at Anything? Oh, We've got ten more minutes. What time do we going to stop? Three yeah. forty-five. All right. More questions. Is there anything underlying, deep question you're afraid to ask? Yes.
1: Well, being the professor, hmm. <laughs> i like this is the, the service and faith learning community, so we're, lot, we're considering these issues from all semester long. Mm-hmm. Um, can you say anything about the? what's going on in the Muslim community in Chicago or certain province or mm-hmm. kind of, I don't
0: know, any thoughts along those lines? Yeah, sure, sure. So a way to think about your overall Muslim obligations, one side is the acts of worship, right? Those are your obligations to the divine. Uh, another side is your obligations to humanity, okay? That's the other half. And that translates at the individual level, as character and service. And then at the collective level, justice. If you think of character and service at the individual level, then made at the collective level, that's essentially justice. And so so put those both together, then you have the complete picture of what a Muslim owes. So in terms of service, uh, uh, you'll find a, a number of Islamic centers will have sponsored by the center charitable projects. Or many Muslims will have their own charitable projects. So for example, uh, a lot of these news stories we're hearing about about synagogues getting desecrated. Uh, um, you, there's a lot of Muslims who've started projects raising money for, for, for getting those repaired. There was a, um, a cemetery, I forgot where, where I think 200 tombstones were, were, were destroyed uh, yesterday or the day before. And literally a colleague of mine started a, an online like Kickstarter type uh, fundraiser to get those repaired. And then there's uh, a number of programs throughout the city of people who are providing either food or shelter to, to the homeless. I mean, I think you'll find anything and everything not unlike what you'd find in, in other religious communities and such. That's one part of it. The other part of it is that there is a lot of discussion trying to figure out, all right, what's happening in our society? And where do we go from here, both in terms of the future of Muslims, but as uh, especially not just Muslims, but other communities like undocumented or, or LGBT and such, and even the you know the rising anti-Semitism and such taking place. So there's a lot of conversations going on. What do we do? And for that, nobody really has answers right now. It's just a big, big question mark. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes. Um, going back to the fasting during Ramadan. Um, <coughs> like, like for the Catholic Church, we fast during. Yeah. Is not really enforced for children? Yeah. Is that the same way? Puberty, usually start around puberty. I started fasting when I was about seven years old, and I even remember the moment. My mother made me an omelet, and I'm this seven year old kid who just basically said, "I'm fasting. What are you guys doing?" Right. I mean, I didn't tell anyone I was fasting until that moment, and so I've fasted every Ramadan since then. You know, a lot of times kids like to fast because there is something uh, curious about it. And then you might make them fast for part of the day. But kids usually get really, really ambitious. They want to do the whole thing. But puberty is usually when all these things become obligations. Parents are recommended to ease the kids into it prior to puberty. Um, But that's usually when you become responsible. Any other questions? About anything? Somebody has a question they want to ask somewhere deep inside. Who is it? <laughs> I like how some of you are just like staring right at me. It's like, go ahead, go ahead, call me. Yeah.
1: You're on campus. Um, if students wanted to visit the prayer room or visit the Islamic Student Association or if they just were interested in finding more meeting people or mm-hmm.
0: What would you recommend? A couple of possibilities. Um, Islam Awareness Week is coming in a couple of weeks. Uh, I think it's the 20th to the 24th. So the MSA will have events all week long. And there's a culmination dinner with a delicious free meal, which might be a, a good to catch. Yeah, food always works for undergrads and for everybody. right? I used to do these Quran studies in my house, and I noticed that if I invited 30 people, maybe 10 people would show up. But if I offered food, then about 50 people would show up, right? People that you know I didn't even know. But um, that'd be one way, an easy way. Uh, uh, and the door is open; you're more than welcome to, to come to the prayer space. You'll find it to be remarkably boring because it's an empty room. Oh, the carpeting pattern is pretty cool, you know. Um, and I'm more than happy to, t- to have conversation with, with uh, any of you about anything. About 80% of the students who visit me are Muslim, but about 20% are not, And who want to talk about anything and everything, whether it's related to belief. There's one student who's non-Muslim who comes to play chess with me on, on, a, on a regular basis. There's about 200 uh, first-years uh, that are Muslim and about 800 undergrads that are Muslim, about 7% of the population. So I'm sure you've seen Muslims walking around. I'm sure you probably have Muslims in your class. Are any of you pre-meds? OK, so you will definitely have Muslims in your class, because for mm-hmm. some reason, it's like in the DNA of Muslims in Chicago, pre-med. Yeah, yeah. Like we used to have this running joke that uh, people went into Islamic studies uh, if they couldn't get into med school or engineering or law. And so I said that to my students said, what about you, Professor Muzafur? And I said, yeah, me too. And Now I'm teaching you, so you're in trouble. But, yeah. Any other questions? Yes? What courses do you teach? Uh, most commonly, I teach Theo 295, which is Intro to Islam. And often, even including this semester, I teach a literature course, Theology 280, which is the Quran as literature. So there we look at more as a work of literature as opposed to a theology text. And I've taught other courses, like 300-level courses, like Revival and Reform in Islamic History and Thought. Um, other courses on just Islamic literature, reading uh, different pieces of literature from the Muslim world. And sometimes I teach film courses, not here as much, but now that I'm here full time. Because uh, uh, I'm also a film critic, so I also you know, show movies on my classes quite a bit. Yeah. Anything else at all? I think so. Thank you. OK, well, thank you. And I'm in Damon. I'm more than happy to be at your service.
1: <laughs> all righty.